All right, I want to welcome all of you who are joining us on our online campus today. It's good to be back in the pulpit after being gone for the past three weeks. I appreciate those who filled the pulpit for me while I was gone. This weekend brings the conclusion of our Blueprints for a Healthy Church series. Of course, the tagline for the series was Lessons Learned or Reinforced During Quarantine. And the final thing we're going to talk about in the series is vision. I don't think it will surprise anyone to hear that the past few months have been really difficult for a lot of churches. I'm thankful that when the COVID-19 virus struck, our church already had a strong online campus in place that allowed us to continue to worship together without missing a beat. And that was a struggle for many churches, especially churches that were small and churches that had limited resources. But it's been more than just being able to have a digital presence when churches weren't allowed to meet in person, the ones who had a completely inward focus pretty much lost their purpose. One of the things that I'm most thankful for and honestly proud of is the fact that our church continued to operate on many different levels, even though things were so dramatically different. We continued to have a high-quality worship experience through our online campus. We continued to support all of our mission partners at the same level as before the pandemic, and we were even able to step up and help meet some financial shortfalls for our mission partners. We saw small groups and Bible studies continue online. We provided a lot of congregational care for people in need. But the thing that I'm most proud of is the way our impact center and our impact campuses serve so many people by providing for their physical needs. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for us to provide help for as many as 2,000 people a week during the heart of the crisis. And one of the best parts of that is it provided us with the opportunity to meet a lot of new people and build a lot of new relationships, especially in the neighborhoods of our impact campuses. Now, at the foundation of all of that was the vision and the mission of our church. Our vision is to be a church that is locally focused and globally engaged with an undeniable impact for Christ. And our mission is to change the world for Christ, one life, one family, one opportunity at a time. Vision is critical when it comes to the local church because vision is a picture of the future that produces passion. But having said that, I've got to tell you that I can sometimes struggle with vision, and I'm just going to be completely honest now. I can sometimes struggle with vision because it's easy for vision, and remember, I'm talking about vision for the church. It's easy for vision to become more about man than about God. I remember when I was a pastor in Oklahoma, I was on the board of a local church planting organization called the Northeast Oklahoma Evangelizing Association, or NOEA for short. We planted a new church in a part of Tulsa where the man who was my insurance agent lived. And because he was a committed Christian, he and his family became a part of that church plant. One day, about six months after the church started, we got together for lunch. And after some small talk and catching up, I asked him how the church was doing. And he let out a heavy sigh and said, if I hear another sermon filled with the words, my vision, I think my head is going to explode. He went on to explain that the new young preacher there talked constantly about his vision for the church, but didn't seem to be interested in doing the actual work of ministry that would help the church grow. And by the way, that 
church plant didn't succeed, it folded. When I served on the board of directors for the Solomon Foundation, I met a lot of preachers, both young and old. We used to hold two pastor's conferences every year, and at the end of the conference, we would have a little golf outing uh, just for some fellowship. After one of the conferences, I was playing golf with a guy who was leading a church of about 250 people. We were riding in the cart together, and I asked him what he thought his greatest need was at the church. And without even hesitating, he said, more staff. And then he, he, went, he went on to add he needed to have a full-time children's pastor and a full-time outreach pastor. I asked him about his current staff, and he told me he had a full-time executive pastor whose job was to oversee the current staff and take care of all the day-to-day needs of the church. I asked him how much staff he had at the time, and beside himself, he only had one other full-time staff member and a part-time staff member. I said, you know, honestly, I'm kind of surprised that a church of 250 people needs a full-time executive pastor. But he said, oh, we do, because I need to be free to focus on nothing but preaching and vision. And honestly, I just kind of shook my head and thought about how much ministry had changed since I was in a small church. That church desperately needed a children's pastor, and it desperately needed an outreach pastor in order to grow. But his vision for the church, I would say his vision for himself, wasn't letting that happen. Listen, I'm going to repeat something that I said earlier. Vision is critical when it comes to the local church because vision is a picture of the future that produces passion. But vision for the church needs to be focused on God and not on man, on what God wants for the church and on what God has revealed to us about the church, his desire for the church in his word. Let me give you one example. You know, there are multiple times in the New Testament where the church is referred to as the body of Christ. And it's fascinating to study and understand the depth and the meaning of that truth. At least it's fascinating to me. It's the Apostle Paul who really provides us with this teaching as he writes letters to different churches and different believers. Uh, For example, in his letter to the Romans, this is what Paul wrote. This is Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. He wrote, for just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, note this, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the other members. He wrote these words to the Christians in Corinth. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Ephesians 4 is one of my favorite passages from the Apostle Paul because he talks about the importance of the church growing and becoming spiritually mature. At one point, he talks about the role of different church leaders, and he mentions apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And he says that those men together, those roles together, this is Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12, equip his people for works of service, note this, so that the body of Christ may be built How about these final words in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24? Paul says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Note this, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I could go on and on, but I'm going to stop right there.
Clearly, God wanted Paul, who was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to teach the early church that they were the body of Christ. And listen, friends, nothing about that has changed. The church in the world today, this church in the world today continues to be the body of Christ. And here's what that means. The church, which remember is all of us, both, indiv both individually and collectively, the church is the physical representation of Christ in this world. It's the organism, the structure, the body through which Christ manifests his life to the world today. Let me make it really, really simple and say it like this. The church reveals Jesus to the world. That's what the Bible teaches us. That's what is at the heart of this truth that the church is the body of Christ. The church in the world reveals Jesus to the world. And while I love every single thing about our church's vision, our church's mission, and while I love our core four strategy that we try to follow, I can't think of a better vision for the church than to make it not just our goal, but our passion to reveal Jesus to the world. In fact, I think that would be the most joyful and fulfilling thing that we could do because here's one fundamental, immutable, unchanging truth about Jesus. Jesus wants to change lives for the good. So let's reveal that reality of Jesus to the world as his body in the world today. I love the story of Cornelius and Peter in Acts chapter 10. I don't have time to give you a lot of history, a lot of background on the story, but Cornelius was the first Gentile convert in the New Testament. When you open up your Bible to Acts chapter 10, and by the way, you should go there sometime today or sometime this weekend and read through Acts chapter 10. When you open up your Bible to Acts chapter 10, then Cornelius and his family are described like this. They're described as being devout, God-fearing, and generous. But here's the bottom line for Cornelius. Because he was a Gentile, because he wasn't Jewish, the message of Christ, what we call the gospel message, the good news that Jesus came to offer a new and a better life had not yet been shared with him. Well, all of that changes in Acts chapter 10 because what we see in Acts chapter 10 is God purposefully puts the apostle Peter and Cornelius together. God connects the two of them. And here's what happens, and I'll just cut to the chase. When Peter found himself, again, by the direction of God, in Cornelius' home, speaking not just to Cornelius and his family, but to several other people that had gathered there, this is one of the things that Peter said about Jesus. This is Acts chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. He said, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. That, of course, is a reference to John the Baptist. He goes on to say, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. Now, 
there's one phrase that really draws my attention, one phrase that jumps out to me, one phrase that I really, really like. It's when Peter says about Jesus, he went around doing good. How did Jesus do that? How did Jesus go around doing good? You know, when I was thinking about this message, honestly, I thought of several different ways that Jesus went around doing good. But for the sake of time, I'm going to limit myself to just one very simple thing. Jesus did good by the way he saw people. Now, that might sound a little odd. It might even sound a little overly simplistic, but I want you to really think about that with me for a few minutes. One of the ways Jesus did good was the way he saw people. Listen, if you study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you really look at the life of Jesus, you will find a distinct difference between the way Jesus saw people and other people saw people. Everyday people saw everyday people. Let me give you some examples. How about the children in Matthew 19? In Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15, we read about people bringing little children to Jesus because they wanted Jesus to place his hands on them and then pray for them, bless them. But the disciples who were there didn't have any time for this. They saw those children as a complete nuisance and a complete annoyance. And so they rebuked the people and told them to take the children and go away. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 19, verse 14. Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom belongs to such as these. And then you know what Jesus did? He did exactly what those people wanted him to do. He placed his hands on them. And even though the text doesn't say it specifically, I know that when he placed his hands on them, he prayed for them and he blessed them. And so what you see in this story is the disciples seeing the people and seeing the children and deciding immediately that they wanted to exclude them and keep them from Jesus. But Jesus looked at them and he wanted to include them. He wanted to welcome them into his life. And that's one of the ways that Jesus went about doing good. How about the tax collectors? We read a lot about tax collectors during Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 9... We read about the calling of Matthew as one of Jesus' disciples. In fact, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9 says this, and it's really simple. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Well, if you continue to read through the story there in Matthew chapter 9, you find that a little bit later, Jesus is having dinner at Matthew's house. And Matthew tells us that there were many other tax collectors and sinners there. And again, I know I've mentioned this before, but this always strikes me every time I read it because this phrase, tax collectors and sinners, is found throughout the Gospels. How bad a person would you have had to have been to have your own category as an evildoer? 
And yet, tax collectors are always mentioned separate from sinners, tax collectors and sinners. I mean, these guys were bad. They were hated. They were despicable in every way. Well, when the religious leaders saw this, when the religious leaders saw Jesus having dinner with other tax collectors and sinners, this is what they said. This is Matthew chapter 9 and verse 11. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That was their question. And the obvious implication behind their question is that's something that we as religious leaders, as religious people, that's something that we would never do. We're too religious to do that. We're too good. We're too righteous for that. But here's Jesus' response in Matthew 9, verses 12 through 13. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so the obvious question here is, what did Jesus mean when he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice? Well, first of all, this is a, a quote from the Old Testament book of Hosea. This is actually the, the, this, what Jesus said are the words of Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. And, and what it means is this. It's telling us that God wants us to love people and God wants us to be concerned for people more than he wants us to observe ritual holiness. That's what's meant by the words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, Let me say it like this. God wants us to make people, especially lost people, a higher priority than just going through the motions of religious activity. When the religious leaders saw the tax collectors and sinners they saw someone that they would never spend time with. But when Jesus saw them, he saw them as people who needed to spend time with him, that he needed to spend time with. The religious leaders looked at the tax collectors and sinners and immediately excluded them. Jesus immediately included them. How about the blind man in John chapter 9? John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3 says, as he, talking about Jesus, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, we've talked about this before. Jesus uh, lived in a culture that believed that if you had a problem like a physical disability or you were a beggar or you were poor or anything like that, it was because you somehow deserved it. You had done something or your parents had done something that caused you to have to suffer through whatever it is you were dealing with. And that was immediately on the disciples' minds. And so they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This man wasn't just a blind man. He was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This is one of my favorite stories in the Gospels for multiple reasons, but here are a couple of them. This is one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. First, because Jesus actually saw this man. He actually saw him. Now, that might not make sense when you first hear that, but I want you to think about this 
with me before. I don't think anybody else even really ever noticed this man. Uh, this, this man was born blind. And so that means that when he got to a certain age that he had become a beggar because of his blindness. And so uh, I'm, I'm imagining that this man who, had born, who was born blind was in the same spot day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, begging to the point where people probably didn't even notice him anymore. They just walked by. But this whole story begins like this. As he, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And so I love this story because it just teaches us a lot about Jesus just by the fact that Jesus saw him. This, one, of the, one of the other reasons, and the second one that I'll give you today uh, that I love this story is because when the disciples noticed the blind man... They saw him as an opportunity for a theological or a religious debate. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? But when Jesus saw him, he simply saw him as someone who could ultimately bring, bring glory to God. Who could ultimately bring glory to God through a transformation. And that's exactly what happened a little later in the story when Jesus healed him. This blind man... What happened in his life and how he responded brought glory to God. And so, when the disciples saw the blind man, they didn't really see him. Not as a person. Not as someone with needs. Not as someone that was loved by God. They just saw him as someone who could be the source of an argument or debate. They excluded him from their personal lives. But not Jesus. When he saw him, he saw so much more. He saw someone who could bring glory to God. And so Jesus, by virtue of his healing this man, included him, welcomed him into his life. Let me give you one last example. And I'm going to ask you to take your Bible and turn to this story with me. It's in the Gospel of Luke in the seventh chapter. I'll give you a, a minute to turn there. It's a story that uh, I've preached on here before. I can't remember how long ago it was, but it's an incredible story. It's in the Gospel of Luke in the seventh chapter, and it begins in verse 36. And the headline or the heading for this part of the chapter in my Bible is simply Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. I'm going to start reading in verse 36, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. You follow along as I go down through verse 50. Now, one of the Pharisees, and remember, Pharisees were the most religious people in the culture that Jesus was a part of. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's table, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, when the religious man who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. 
Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now listen, honestly, I could spend a great deal of time talking about this story. It's a moving story. I hope it is as moving to you as it is to me. But all I want to do is focus on one really simple thing in this story. And again, it goes back to the whole premise that we've been using in this message, and that is the way Jesus saw people. Jesus went around doing good by the way he saw people. When Simon the Pharisee saw this woman, all he saw was a sinner. When Jesus saw this woman, all he saw was someone with a desperate need. Now, what's the common thread that runs through all these stories? Honestly, I'm sure that we could come up with more than one answer, but how about this one? When it comes to people, and listen, friends, I'm talking about all people. I'm talking about all the people that you and I will encounter in the daily activity of our lives, all the people we encounter in the network of our lives. We can do one of two things. We can exclude them or we can include them. It all depends on how we see them. When it comes to the people we encounter in life, as the church, we can exclude them or include them. It all depends on how we see them. You know, Sandy and I have been away from home for about three weeks. The last two weeks we spent in Florida, we take a trip to Florida for a couple of weeks every summer. We normally will go and be there for a week and for about another week, our kids and our grandkids will come and we'll be all together. It got kind of crazy this year. The schedule got changed because of the COVID-19 virus. Our flights got canceled and rescheduled and it just made it difficult for us to, to follow the same schedule that we originally planned. And so Sandy and I got to Florida on June the 24th, which was a Wednesday. The next day, Thursday, Trisha and Morgan joined us. And the day after that on Friday, Andrew and Karen, the grandkids all joined us. And then we were together for about a week and then they went home and Sandy and I spent a few days there together alone. But on Saturday, the day after Andrew and Kara and the grandkids got there, and the, the day after we were all there together, about noon, Sandy got a text from one of her sisters saying that her son, Kyle, was not breathing. Please pray. Her sister said that she was at the hospital where he was, but they wouldn't let her in. Another sad result of the COVID-19 virus. Sandy texted her back and said we'd be praying. She came into the bedroom where I was, and she told me about it, and we immediately prayed together for Kyle. 
A little while later, her sister called. And her sister said that the doctor was unable to revive him and that Kyle had died. He was 33 years old. You know, Sandy and I spent more time around Kyle when he was young than when he was older. And I can tell you that when he was young, he was really a sweet boy. He and his sisters, he had two older sisters, would visit us in Oklahoma, and we would go on a float trip down the Illinois River. When Kyle was young, he loved to play baseball. And I can remember spending a lot of time playing catch with him. And I can remember him pitching to me. He was a pitcher on his baseball team. And he loved baseball, and I enjoyed that time with him because that's something I used to do with Andrew for hours and hours. When he graduated from high school, he went to Texas A&M University, which was something he wanted to do for years. His father was a graduate of Texas A&M, and both of his sisters graduated from there as well. When Kyle was young, he went to church, and I really believe that because of that, and I believe this based on more things than I have time to tell you about. I believe there was a time when he was young when he encountered Jesus and he trusted his life to Jesus. But as he got older, his life just got complicated as he dealt with a variety of physical and emotional problems as well as the harsh disappointment that life can sometimes bring. I'm sure that all of us are familiar with that. And the bottom line is, even though he was loved, as he got older, his life became characterized by struggles that left him difficult and isolated and alone. A funeral service is going to be held for him on Saturday in Wimberley, Texas. Sandy and Andrew and Tricia will be there, and I'll join them digitally. In fact, I'll deliver the funeral message digitally. Obviously, Kyle and his family have been in our thoughts and prayers over the past several days. And as I was writing this message, he was heavy on my heart and heavy on my mind because here's the thing about Kyle as he got older. He would have been someone who would have been easy to exclude from our lives for a variety of reasons. He was too difficult. He was too isolated. He was too alone. He had too many problems. But Jesus would never exclude someone like Kyle based on those things, never. In fact, those are the very things that would have drawn Jesus to someone like Kyle. And here's the deal. Whether we know it or not, we all know Kyle because we all know someone like Kyle. We all know someone who can be difficult. We all know someone who's isolated. We all know someone who's alone. We all know someone who struggles with a variety of problems. Let me just say it like this. We all know someone who has a desperate need. And the only right response is to be like Jesus and see them, really see them in a way that 
involves reaching out to them and welcoming, welcoming them into your life, including them in your life, not excluding them. And that, friends, at the end of the day, that needs to be our vision. As the church, the body of Christ, the ones responsible for revealing Jesus to the world. I know that the world is a crazy place right now. I know that there are things happening around us that frighten us, that make us angry, that fill us with a lot of anxiety. Those are the very things that should make us more committed than ever to living like Jesus because Jesus is the only real hope for the world. So what are we to do? Well, how about we turn off Fox News or CNN or whatever station you watch? How about we stop all of the self-righteous and angry and pensive and judgmental social media posts? Better yet, just deactivate your social media accounts altogether if that's an issue for you. How about we say no to grumbling and complaining and we take the time to see someone like Kyle and welcome them into our lives so that we can love them like Jesus did? like Jesus would. How about we quit putting it off and we identify our one life, someone who is a long way from God, and we welcome them and include them in our life in a way that just might lead to their life being changed for all eternity. Listen. I believe in the mission and the vision and the strategy of this church. I'm completely committed to all of them. But at the end of the day, there is simply no greater vision that any church can have than the vision of revealing Jesus to the world by the way we live, but more important, also by the way we love, by the way we see people and welcome them and include them in our lives. And that is one of the strongest lessons reinforced to me over the past few months. Let's be the church, let's be the body of Christ together in a way that really does change the world one life, one family, and one opportunity at a time by simply changing the way we see people and seeing them like Jesus did. I want you to pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time to share from your word. And my simple prayer today is that you would just pierce and convict all of our hearts about who we need to be as a church in the world today. We reveal Jesus to the world, and so let's go around doing good like Jesus did, and let's start doing good by changing the way we see people, and let's stop excluding people from our lives, and let's start including them and welcoming them into our lives the way Jesus did so that their life might ultimately be changed. Every one of us, knows or at least sees someone like Kyle. Help us to respond like Jesus.
And I pray this in his name. Amen.